Coming up next is this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health, on ReachMD XM157. Tuberous sclerosis in angiomyolipomas. Does sorelimus help? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. John Bissler, who is Professor of Pediatrics at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dr. Bissler is in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension at the Medical Center, and we're going to be talking about tuberous sclerosis complex and whether sorelimus helps. John, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. Maybe before we get into the uh, meat of our discussion today, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own medical background and how you got involved with this unusual disease. My involvement actually is kind of an unusual story by itself. The second gene identified for tuberous sclerosis, or TSC2, is right next to the PKD1 gene for polycystic kidney disease 1. And I was very interested in some of the interesting features of the sequence for PKD1 and this was back in 1995 when the sequence was published, and I realized how close the two genes were. In sequence? Yeah, they're like 72 base pairs apart, and they're transcribed tail to tail. And so I thought, well, gee, these people also have cystic disease. I should look into this. And as I started doing sort of the basic science sorts of things, I discovered that their nephrologic care was perhaps not as good as it should be, in my opinion. So I decided that I probably ought to start to take care of them clinically as well as getting their DNA and that sort of thing. That's really how it started. It is uh, an unusual disease. A lot of us haven't seen cases of it since training. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the disease. How rare is it and what kind of people end up with it? Let's put it in perspective. Polycystic disease is one out of a thousand and tuberous sclerosis is one out of six thousand. One of the surprising facts is when we learned about tuberous sclerosis in our training, we learned about intractable seizures, the right. facial angiofibromata, and developmental delay, but less than 30% of the patients actually have that manifestation. And actually, about two-thirds of patients with mutations in TSC2, they're new mutations. They're Hmm. not uh, genetically passed down. I suspect that made it kind of interesting to look at. Yeah. Let me ask you this. You and your team published in January an article in the New England Journal about that, but before 2008, before this year, what was the sort of standard of care for treating patients with angiomyolipomas? You said they maybe perhaps weren't being treated as well as they might have been. What what was this sort of lay of the land at that time? Well, what I meant, I don't mean to, I, a little more judgmental than I meant, there wasn't a nephrologist that was particularly involved. There wasn't a, like one name that jumped out all the time. There were two approaches to these tumors. Uh, one would be urologic surgery, and that would range from a total nephrectomy to partial nephrectomies and some lesion-sparing sorts of activity. The other one was embolization, where the catheter would go up to the kidney and embolize the blood supply for the angiomyolipoma. The interesting thing about these tumors is the blood vessels can be wildly abnormal, uh-huh. develop aneurysms, so they break and bleed. And that's one of the biggest life-threatening risks is that this would, you know, mm-hmm. they have an aneurysm that would bleed. And so, basically, people would look at these tumors. If they weren't familiar with tuberous sclerosis, there'd always be the concern of renal cell. Some of the lesions can have more solid components. On imaging? On imaging, right. Mm-hmm. So they would, for example, do a nephrectomy, and the problem is... is didn't, didn't need it. <laughs> they're using it, and, of course, the other kidney can be involved just as easily. So, obviously, sometime recently, you and your team decided to take a look at some non-surgical approaches to treating at least the angiomyolipomas, and tell us a little bit about like what your thinking was about your study, why you went that way and why you designed it the way you did. All right, so actually, the 
there's a large community of people studying tuberous sclerosis as well as a very related disease called lymphangioliomyomatosis. The two diseases have mutations in the same TSC2 gene, for example, for the lymphangioliomyomatosis, also called LAM. So research had gone on to understand what the tuberous sclerosis gene products actually do, and they gate a signaling pathway. That's the mTOR pathway. mTOR stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. And so there'd been preclinical studies in animals, rats and mice, and actually other model systems that suggested that using drugs that inhibited rapamycin, since the TSC1, TSC2 protein complex, inhibit mTOR, if you inhibit mTOR directly using a drug, you might reestablish a, sort of a normal signaling pathway. And when you thought about that theoretically, if you uh, suppressed that signaling, what did you expect might happen? Sort of the range of expectations were that, wow, that maybe the tumors would just disappear. The other one is, is maybe we'd completely stop them from growing. So a wide spectrum of possibilities. If we perturb this pathway, what would actually happen? That was really why we undertook the trial. Well, tell us a little bit about how you designed this study, who you got in it and how you got them, and was it easy to do? And... Right. So actually, this was definitely a group effort. You know, if you look at the paper, there's a huge number of right. investigators, and we all contributed pretty equally, really. And so the patients were recruited from, we have a very large tuberous sclerosis clinic in Cincinnati, David Franz, the medical director. We've got over 500 patients, so we recruited from that population as well as from the LAM Foundation, uh, patients with the disease lymphangiomyomatosis, and mm-hmm. Dr. McCormick, medical director of the LAM Foundation. The design of the study was simply to help us with a proof of concept. If we gave the drug, starting at very low doses and then increasing it to immunosuppressive levels, based sort of on the short-term outcome, what would actually happen to the angiomyelopomas? The other part of the trial was for the patients with lung disease, we also did pulmonary function testing. Initially, honestly, because we were more concerned about the adverse pulmonary effects of mTOR inhibition, there were rare case reports of something called interstitial pneumonitis. So we were looking for that. Okay. Well, if you are just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Bissler. We're talking about tuberous sclerosis complex and its treatment with sirolimus. John, so we've talked a little bit about the study design and what you might have thought would would happen. Tell us about what you found, and were you surprised with what you found? (laughs) In that proof of concept trial, actually my personal opinion, my working hypothesis was the lesions may not change a lot. But actually, we found on average they reduced in volume by about 50% while on the drug. How long were patients typically on the drug? They were on the drug for 12 months. And then they were observed for an additional 12 months afterwards. And the rationale for this was to help us understand, was the effect durable, for example? Did the 50% reduction stay that way? After the drug is removed. Right. And not so much did the tumors come back and metastasize. They don't generally behave that way. The original reports by Ito and Rubin that described what mTOR signaling actually does in the mTOR pathway, the TSC signaling in the mTOR pathway, really controlled cell size. So one of the thoughts was, what if the lesions just shrink because the cell volume decreases oh, and it comes back? What we found, honestly, Gary, was that some shrunk down to about 50% and then came back to baseline or slightly above. And then anywhere in between, majority did have an increase in volume of the tumor, although, I don't know, about 25% had a reduction of 30% or more, even at 
two years. Were you able to tell whether that was due to reduction of cell size or a reduction of actual number of cells? We didn't do biopsies along the way because of the vascular nature of the tumor, so So I can't actually answer that. But if we thought it was just cell volume and without any loss of cells, one would posit that the lesions should have all come right back to their baseline and stayed there. Now, you talked about uh, your concern initially for possible pulmonary side effects. Were there any, or were there any other uh, side effects? <laughs> well, there was the other way around, actually. Uh, <laughs> they that, got better? They had, <laughs> it looked like, uh, by six months, and it was statistically significant for FEV1, a pulmonary function marker, as well as a forced vital capacity, that people were improved. And while this was a small number of patients that certainly did launch Another trial looking at the use of Cirillimus specifically in the pulmonary aspect of LAM. And Dr. Frank McCormick's the PI on that project. Mm -hmm. Any other adverse side effects? Actually, there were side effects that are commonly expected. We work with a drug in transplant. I've used it for quite some time in kidney transplants as a nephrologist. So the typical side effects are sores in the mouth, basically canker sores, aphis ulcers, and they can develop a hyperlipidemia as well that can be treated with uh, statins and that sort of thing. So those were the most common side effects. We had some adverse events that required hospitalization, things mostly involving infection, for example, community-acquired pneumonia. One patient was on the uh, wrong end of a cat's teeth, (laughs) (laughs) developed a cellulitis. But basically the important thing is compared to the literature, compared to experience, these patients who have germline mutation and TSC1 or TSC2 didn't seem to have any more susceptibility. They didn't seem to have any worse side effects than the general population. Mm -hmm. You mentioned having used it with transplant patients. Are they on it forever? As immunosuppressive drugs, some people take it for long durations. So am I reading this that if this is borne out in future studies, that there's no reason that this might not become a long-term way of treating the disease of tuberous sclerosis? It might become a long-term treatment. Like you said, there's more work that needs to be done. The fact is extremely exciting. At first, that we were able to alter the lesion volume. The second one is, is that not everyone's lesion came completely back to baseline. So there was some persistence. If we can learn and understand what the actual effect was and how we were able to achieve a reduction and make use of those mechanisms, I think then it could become part of therapy for the diseases. Compared to current standard of care, is it relatively expensive? Is it likely to increase costs, do you think? That's a concern. Basically, if you have to take the drug every day, you know, the questions that we're trying to answer right now with ongoing trials are what's the dosing that you need, how much, and how often can you get away with weekly therapy, for example, instead of daily? Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that necessarily. Is it taken orally? Yes, just Mm -hmm. a pill that can be taken orally. So what's next for uh, your team in research? Are you following up on this study? I know you mentioned some other folks are Right. So for our team and for other teams, there's multiple trials now for this process. One's called the TESTOL trial in England, and there was a letter in the same New England Journal that they reported their 12-month data, and their imaging findings for the angiomalopoma was pretty much dead on what we reported. The interesting thing is they're going to go for two years on drug, so it'll be interesting to see if you prolong the duration of exposure, but you continue to get further reduction in the tumor volume. There's another trial that's looking at basically following almost the exact same protocol, a multi-center trial out of Boston, to look to see, is this phenomenon repeatable? And then we're doing, like I said, daily, different doses daily, as well as weekly therapy to see what we can come up with. There's a spin-off of this as well. The lesions in the brain with tuberous sclerosis, some people develop what's called a subependymal giant celestrocytoma. 
truly in children. David Franz, the medical director, has been doing a study looking at the ability of this drug to reduce the tumor size in the pediatric patients. So those are the studies that are ongoing right now. It's pretty exciting stuff, and I appreciate your sharing it with us. I've got to tell you that reading the article is sometimes a little intimidating, but hearing the lead researcher talk about it makes it much more accessible, and we really appreciate your time. My thanks to Dr. John Bissler for being our guest. We've been talking about tuberous sclerosis and sirolimus as a possible treatment. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to a Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code radio and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, presents a special series, Focus on Men's Health.